Top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You know what you're thinking. Mine's bigger than yours, right? It's not fair. Throw it away. All right? Tons of popcorn there. Yeah. And all you gotta do is go climb a tree to go eat it. <laughs> it was a night like any other night. Then something happened. Oh, good lord. It's. It's unbelievable. It's. It's horrible. Welcome to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of low-budget cinema. The sleep of reason gives birth to monsters. Hi, my name's Chris, and along with Jeff, we're bringing you the very best and worst of horror, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic wasteland, kung fu, and women in prison movies from the 1960s to today. Check us out at reallyawfulmovies.com, part of the Crypt TV family. Ready to beg for it, Brian? Ready to crawl across the floor and plead for my juice? No? Not yet? Well, give it a few more hours, Brian. But whenever you want the pain to stop, I'll be here. Whenever you want to stop hurting, you come to me. When the pain gets so great you think you're turning inside out, just ask for my juice. Come to me when you're ready, Brian. Come to me and get my juice. Why are the stars always winking and blinking above? What makes a fella start thinking of falling in love? It's not the season. The reason is plain as a moon. It's just Elmer's tune. What makes a lady of eighty go out on the loose? Why does a gander meander in search of a goose? What puts the kick in a chicken, the magic in June? It's just Elmo's tune. Downtown Toronto headquarters, here's episode 165, Frank Henenlotter's Brain Damage from 1988. 1988, so this was his second feature after Basket Case, which was... Uh... A seminal film for me. I mean, it was that was one of those movies that really solidified my love for horror. We did a Basket Case podcast way back when, and I think I said all I had to say about Basket Case. But yeah, and was, now we're going to do an inversion of that because I've never said this was a seminal film for me because you usually say that, but this is for me now. Basket Case. Uh, sorry, uh, brain damage. Brain damage and I remember vividly the guy pulling. I don't even know what that was. I guess pieces of tissue or uh, viscera mm-hmm. or. It looked like intestines, but it doesn't make sense anatomically. The guy pulling biological materials out of his ear, mm-hmm. and that was on some of the posters when I rented right. this movie way back when I was 11. And I loved this. And uh, the whole 
I guess, drug motifs right. and everything. It was obviously it's an allegory for uh, drug addiction. Yeah, and uh, withdrawal, yeah. and mm-hmm. and the 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 name of Frank Henlotter attached to it. I can't yeah. remember whether I did this and then Basket Case or the reverse. Either way, I felt the same way about that, and it was just, bam, just a one-two punch of. Wacky goodness. Well, the reason why I, I bring up the fact that this was 1988 is, and that Basket Case was a seminal film for me is because Basket Case came out in 82. This was his follow-up, so it took six years to make. Now, just like Basket Case, this was a low-budget feature. It was made for... Well, it had a much higher budget than Basket Case, which I believe was only about, what, $40,000 or so. so. <laughs> this was made for 900000 But all the same, again, New York City, which is highlighted it's all its squalor its glory like <laughs> yeah. it was a basket case um a likable protagonist uh a creature that's an antagonist that's both sinister yet lovable so mm. there's a lot of similarities uh there's also some uh, very overt similarities to basket case i.e cameos which we'll talk about mm. as we get into this but just talk about frank hennenlauter i mean frank hennenlauter is a, I mean, he's not a household name for example people that aren't into horror or the genre, they know Wes Craven. You know, they, they know who, if you say who John Carpenter is, chances are they will have heard that name. Uh, David Cronenberg, what have you. But then there's other directors that we love. You know, those of us that are really into the horror. I'm talking about your Stuart Gordons, your, uh, I guess you say your Takeshi Mikes, you know, the foreign guys. And Hen and Lauder, we, we hold them up there on the Pantheon as one of these horror gods, and yet... A, he's not a household name. If you go up to, you know, 10 people in the street and say, do you know who Frank Henenlotter is? They'll probably say, oh, what, is he some sort of architect or something? <laughs> you know? And he really hasn't made that many movies. There's Basket Case, Brain Damage, two sequels to Basket Case, Frankenhooker, Bad Biology, and that's pretty much it. And but yet, because his films are so indelibly lovable and fun and... Henenlotter-esque, he's, in my opinion, he's in the Pantheon, but it's a very select Pantheon. Do you know what I'm getting with this? He's Henenlotterian. Uh, he has his own uh, adjective, almost, at least in our eyes. Mm. And uh, Yeah, I, I guess uh, with this one here, we have a strange symbiotic relationship between the antagonist and the protagonist, mm. a la... Of a basket case. This being his second feature and having a larger budget than he did with Basket Case, and the story, there are a lot of similarities because just as Brian and Almer and in Brain Damage have the symbiotic relationship, so too do Blyle and Dwayne in Basket Case, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of stuff like the New York City milieu and so on and so forth. Perhaps, I mean, a lot of directors, when they do make their second feature and they get a larger budget, they sort of do what they did with the first film, but they'd make it bigger and better. And in many ways, maybe that's what Henlotter was doing with brain damage. Yeah, I guess to uh, maybe avoid a sophomore slump, but then mm-hmm. in reality, I guess he, he was extraordinarily antagonistic toward the company involved in the, the marketing and how the poster materials were laid out. And it really didn't have uh, a kind of push that it deserved. And it only decades hence finally uh, achieve the notoriety it deserved. It was panned mercilessly, and I think very unfairly. It's uh, it's easy to say in hindsight, but I was reading uh, New York Times review of it. Uh, yeah, I'm again, yeah, we're rolling here. our eyes here. Yeah, <laughs> if you don't get the visual. Yeah, yeah, the and they're extraordinarily dismissive of film that has so much 
so many underpinnings of interesting uh, allegory and insights mm -hmm. into the human condition and to the into the addiction experience. Well, I'm sure that the uh, basket case didn't receive raves from Pauline Kael either. So <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but I guess you could you but... could at least uh, um, appreciate it, its pluck and mm -hmm. its its good naturedness. Mm -hmm. And I thought the same would have carried over to to uh, brain damage, which is arguably as funny. And there are certain set pieces in here that are hilarious. But and uh, to be honest, honestly, this it's it's a charming movie. The the character of you know the the monster in this because both both Basket Case and Brain Damage are monster movies and what what differentiates our monster in this movie, Almer, um, as Elmer Almer or what have you, from Belial is that Belial was mute whereas Almer is uh, is very, very loquacious, loquacious and jocular and and and. It has a nice singing voice nice, too, exactly. like Benzak Shotin. Amazingly enough, he was his voice was done by um, esteemed horror host, one of the one of the original horror hosts, Zachary, who was this very sort of dignified man. But he was one of the first to put on the ghoulish makeup and introduce movies. He was uh, he predated your Elvira's and your, I believe, vampires and everything. But yeah, he he did the voice of uh, of Almer, but. Yeah, I mean, let's get into the the, the tale of. Um, I mean, this is basically the tale of a boy <laughs> and, and his his what? And his what, pet? No, no, his no. Pet. Yeah. Is it, well, it's a symbiotic relationship between mm. a young man and I guess. A, would you call it a parasite? No, not really a parasite. In the sense. Well, a parasite parasites, I guess, in the biological sense, that you when you think of a lamprey, to mm -hmm. which I, I kind of liken this creature, uh, uh, one of these worms that inhabit the Great Lakes and sucks the lifeblood, mm. literally the blood out of fish and kills them. So I guess you could argue that this creature is not giving this guy the best time of it, but he is giving him an experience that... Well, that's uh, the thing. Because a parasite by nature takes away, whereas... Yeah, and not give it. So it's like a gives. symbiosis. He's giving him hmm. a, these wonderful hallucinations, these wonderful visions, uh, these addictive visions yeah and what he's receiving in return is brains because he needs brains in order to survive that's his yeah. sustenance yeah but he's not getting it uh he's getting it through nefarious means by using brian as his conduit mm -hmm. to bring him to people bring him to victims exactly. because as they stress in the movie i guess uh he prefers to dine on human brains, and that's the, those are the ones that... And fresh brains, too. Fresh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't we all <laughs> like to dine on fresh things? Uh, yeah, and this gives him, I guess, some kind of power yeah. that well, but, just uh, pure meat would not. Because when the movie begins, we're introduced to an elderly couple, and uh, uh, their names are Martha and Morris, and the, the elderly gentleman brings home brains. Uh, they probably procured at the local butcher shop. I don't know what what animal he got them from, mm. but these were not what Almer wants. These were not human brains. These were brains that were meant to be. They had Elmer. They had him in a um, bathtub, and these were brains to feed to Elmer. Well, much to their consternation, when they go to feed him the brains, he is no longer there. He has escaped. And they frantically go through the through the entire building, um, looking for this creature that has escaped and there's two points of interest number one they knock on one neighbor's door as are asking you know have you seen this this slug like creature yeah. <laughs> and that neighbor is played by beverly bonner who was 
had a very prominent role in Basket Case. Uh, he was the hooker with the hundred gold. Yes, that, uh, lived, yeah. uh, in and, the Hotel Brosler. Yeah. And on Facebook, I just sort of like I was so overjoyed watching this movie. I don't normally do this, but I just you know people always on Facebook say I you know now watching right, and I put watching basket uh, sorry watching Brain Damage, and I'll never you know I, I it's been so many years since I've seen this I forgot how fun it was, and my good friend Greg Lamberson commented because he um you know director of slime city director of killer rack what have you he worked on this movie behind the scenes and he says yeah that scene when they were frantically searching through the apartment looking for elmer that was me in the dress so you didn't see the face <laughs> you saw the uh the body and it was hmm. it was greg standing in for i guess beverly bonner but uh and i commented back said greg you wore it well <laughs> yeah and, uh, hilarious too they asked to see this uh neighbor's bathtub and they respond with well are you insane like, this is crazy like that you would invade my space to do that and yeah they're they're searching for this creature yeah very similar to basket case it's on the lamb it's a slug on the lamb and it ends up in <laughs> in the apartment of um, a, a brother a brother duo. This is where he slug on the lamb. It almost sounds like that. Because <laughs> I was thinking of uh, like that song "Fox on the Run" <laughs> by Sweet, I believe. Yeah, and great it's song. Like, yeah, it's, it's from a great the, song. Uh, um, soundtrack to Dazed and Confused. Yeah, it's like Fox, Fox on, on the Run. run. <laughs> slug on yeah. the lamb. Yeah, no one would mistake this for a. Uh, you know, double entendre for a woman or anything, but yeah, a slug on the run, mm -hmm. and it ends up in this uh, apartment of this uh, brother duo, and who are they brothers or are they? I didn't, I didn't quite get that. Were they bro uh, yeah, brothers? Yeah, brothers or roommates? Friends? Uh, I think they were brothers. They certainly looked similar enough to the point where I almost confused them mm -hmm. at one point. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the Brian. one of the occupants is uh, Brian, who's uh, very similar to. I love this guy's name. You interviewed him, Kevin Von. Hederick. Hederick. Yeah. It sounds like a, like an archduke from the Austrian Hung Hungary Empire or something. Mm. Kevin von Hederick, and he's very similar. He's kind of a weirdo kind of guy. Well, I mean, the only not as weird as that character. Well, the, the, the difference being that, uh, that Kevin, who played Dwayne Bradley in Basket Case, had the most awe-inspiring afro <laughs> yeah, I've ever seen yeah. in life, and he still has an amazing head of hair. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, very true. I also got to say that uh, that was um, one of those moments in my, uh, I guess interviewing career because i mean because basket was such a seminal film for me and because it really turned me on to a new sort of genre of horror which was you know your sort of like your really grubby diy low budget but yet totally effective movies that i watched over and over and over again when i was sitting down next to kevin speaking with him I kind of did a double take. I'm like, whoa, I'm actually sitting down speaking to Dwayne Bradley, and he could not, <laughs> I have to say, he could not have been a nicer man. I had such a pleasure talking with Kevin Von Henrik. I spoke with him. He gave, he gave a great interview. He was charming. He was welcoming. He was wonderful. Later that evening, uh, I had the opportunity to talk to him off the record. It was his birthday that weekend. We all sang him happy birthday. <laughs> Just a great, great guy. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, I have no interview career, but I guess I felt similarly just sitting down with Goretta Goretta. And my uh, 
question in that interview didn't come out, so I have no Why podcast. didn't it come out? Because uh, it was too loud and I wasn't recording properly. You didn't press the record yeah. on it. Was <laughs> it was just some, yeah. saying, man. It was some awful snafu. You forgot to press the Yeah, so there's no uh, auditory <laughs> record of me talking with the effervescent and ever-charming and fun uh, Goretta Goretta. But I, so, I remember to press record. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure <laughs> well, that's what record. makes you a, uh, <laughs> someone who has an interviewing career. <laughs> I, yeah, so, but, yeah, again, this is... Fen- Oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying you're right. I mean, just like Dwayne, he, I mean, there's a difference, you know, with, with Dwayne, he's a sort of like a country bumpkin from upstate New York who moves to the big city with his brother Belial in tow. Here we have, I believe he's a college student, is he not? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay, well, Possibly, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's living in New York with his either friend or brother. It's maybe not quite uh, defined, but he's also got a, a lovely girlfriend by the name of Barbara. And and he's supposed to go on a date with her. He's supposed to go take her to a concert. He all he lives in the same building as this elderly couple that we meet at the beginning of the movie. Unfortunately, when she comes to sort of pick him up, he's he's out of commission. Yeah, yeah, he's not feeling well, and he attributes it to some sort of flu. I need to maybe rest. Mark, why don't you take her out instead? So Mark and Barbara go off to the concert, and Brian is left alone in the apartment, and that's when the story proper begins yeah so i guess this creature affixes itself to him and uh by way of the neck and it's just pretty glorious too because uh i guess what it does is it taps into maybe it's cerebrospinal fluid Mm. of the victim and it injects this little bit of uh, it's like a pincer i don't even know it just uh insectoid and uh, you, you see, this is pretty hilarious too, because when it injects the substance, the brain electrifies, mm-hmm. and this is meant to represent, I guess, the crossfire of the neurons. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because the brain that was used looks a little bit like gnocchi, and I thought I was in like some bad trattoria, but uh, but then I also got somewhat hungry. So say what you will about that. But well, I thought remind, that was really reminded me of uh, Cat in the Brain, Lucio Fulci. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but that that was so neat because it reminded me of the the '60s kind of monster movie mm-hmm. where they would frequently do that, where like the brain becomes electrified and uh and all of a sudden this guy starts to experience this brian experience uh transcendent uh, hallucinatory uh psilocybin slash lsd type visions and they're reproduced in wonderful fashion uh, there's a blinking eye at the f- beginning of the film he uh wan- wanders out into what looks like the bronx mm-hmm. and wanders into a scrapyard and starts uh, hallucinating wonderfully in ways that I guess we experienced back in the day alone well no I mean the way I, I likened it to was basically uh, everything looked like uh, going to the planetarium to watch uh, Pink Floyd laser light show <laughs> yeah. on you know some sort of hallucinogenic substance mm. uh, so yeah everything became very Floydian yeah. very bright very kaleidoscopic yes. colorful and furthermore you also, you know, I mean, it's not really made overt, but you get the sense that he's 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 got a high going. I mean, he feels yeah. he feels alive. He feels good. Now it's interesting because the name of this creature, and this is a wonderfully designed creature. It looks like a giant slug or maybe even a sea cucumber. Right? Oh, oh well, yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, maybe, uh, also a, a geoduck, which is one of the more obscene sea creatures that they have the Master Chef contestants uh, grapple with on TV. Yeah, it's with this one giant cyclopic eye, <laughs> and the cute the creature is so cute, except for when it opens up its maw and then you see yeah. <laughs> all these teeth and proboscis and what yeah. have you. But the name of the creature, it's not Elmer, it's Elmer, A L Y M E R, and 
that got me thinking of the the and forgive me if I'm pronouncing it wrong the amygdala. Yeah, yeah. And that's the pleasure center of the brain. Uh, possibly, isn't I, it? I mean, that's because remember in in From Beyond they were talking about tapping into the amygdala, and that was what was going to give Doctor Pretorius, you know, all these. Oh, I thought it was the, oh, the pituitary gland. Oh, Initially, it's pituitary gland. Oh, okay, right, the right, amygdala right. might, no, I think you're onto something too. Is it's the, this guy's dopamine's activated. Yeah. He's having a quasi-religious experience. Well, yeah. He's enjoying himself the way I did on mushrooms as well. I, I did, I did do, just do a very cursory Wikipedia mm. search on the amygdala and I'm saying that very fast in case I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, mm. Is it amygdala, amygdala? I don't know. Tomato, tomato. Yeah. But um, it's responsible for many different uh, neurological functions, mm -hmm. but pleasure is one of them. So I think that was an intentional naming of this creature. So oh, yeah, maybe yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, That's certainly not Elmer's glue. And the backstory behind his name is quite hilarious too. But yeah, anyway, in this scrapyard, there's. Well, what is the backstory? Oh, uh, I guess it's a creature that whose provenance goes back thousands of years. And when one of the elderly. The elderly half of this couple, the gentleman half, uh, tries to procure this creature back later. He gives this wonderful tale about how, it, I, if I'm not mistaken, it was, uh, it was around in the Middle Ages. So this thing is hundreds of years old. And then it, it came under the uh, ownership of a Spanish viceroy and then a Portuguese explorer. It had this big circular route to Berlin, I believe, where he picked it up and then took it to America. And I think bought it from... Who knows what, but yeah, it has a, an incredible backstory. It's almost like, itself. It's I almost just love like, like the word viceroy. Yeah, it was owned by a, like a count and a viceroy and an archduke. It's almost like the the, the Lamont configuration in Hellraiser. Hellraiser, yeah, or even uh, Gizmo in Gremlins. You know, <laughs> this this creature that somehow makes its way to America through these very uh, nebulous channels. Nebulous yeah. channels. Yeah. It certainly has a greater backstory than most of the victims were associated with in a slasher film. But let, well, let's talk about the victims because this creature. I mean, yes, he gives, but he. He takes away. Now he doesn't take away so much from Brian, but he takes away from other people because when Brian is his first victim is in this aforementioned yeah, gray, scrapyard, uh, yeah. scrapyard, a night watchman who confronts Brian for trespassing, and before you know it, he's removed of his cerebellum, yeah. his yeah. brain. <laughs> yeah. That's what the creature does: is yeah. he it's sucks like a... out and feeds. On other people's brains. Yeah, it's almost like a toilet plunger, the way it affixes to people's foreheads and sucks out their frontal cortex, mm -hmm. and, which I just find absolutely hilarious. It's almost like a, like a, a low-budget sketch comedy when someone is like trying to swing it around with a cat that's attacking them. It just, it just made me laugh so much. This is a, okay, good, pretty good practical effect, but the guy spinning around trying to pull this slug lamprey off his forehead was just... Absolutely well, that, hilarious again, and again, disgusting. Going right back to Basket Case, Belial was a hand puppet, and it was operated by Frank Hanlauter himself. Mm. And when you did see the creature move on its own volition, it was stop motion, and every time uh, the the Belial would attack, it was literally the actor just grabbing this latex puppet in the face <laughs> and flouncing around, uh, a la you know Bella Lugosi in uh, Edward's Bride of the Monster, mm. and just pure commitment and. Yeah. It works, and so the, that brought a smile to my face because it, it harkened back to Basket Case. Yes, the effects are a little better in this one, but yeah, the that was great. I loved it. But there's one kill in this movie that outshines them all, probably the most infamous kill, uh, because as you know, because I mean, this film is 
analogous of drug dependency. Yeah, it's it's he, he's really made a Faustian bargain with this creature. And as much as he's enjoying the visions, he's becoming dependent and he's becoming sensitized or desensitized. Mm. Sorry, I always get those mixed up. Desensitized to the amount and the frequency and the experience, which has to be increasingly administered and made more potent because you don't feel as much. So he's mm. starting to get strung out and needing uh, some juice yeah. from, from Aylmer. And uh, and, as, and as Aylmer is requiring stuff of him too. So mm. the, the it's a... You know, quid pro quo arrangement, but yeah. Elmer is getting hungrier too. And meanwhile, he's drawing ever more distant from Barbara, who's actually becoming closer to Mark. And uh, at one point, he escapes again into the night, <laughs> heading down St. Mark's Place uh, in New yes, York City yeah. uh, into this wonderful punk nightclub. Oh, of course. And he meets a girl who uh, the, the two of them go out into the alley, and he. You know, she kind of feels a bit down there. Oh, great. Yeah, fantastic. You've got a real monster down there. Great line. Yeah, right, right. Fantastic. Just, yeah. yeah, just so cheeky. Indeed. And then as she's, well, let's just call a spade a spade, engaging in the act of fellatio, mm -hmm. Elmer bursts out. out. Bursts out of the zipper and holy crap. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. I don't know how in God's name they got away with this. Well, they, they got away with it, uh, apparently, um... A lot of the crew got really sick and disgusted when they were filming that scene and walked off. And the same thing happened on the set of Basket Case during a couple scenes where they felt the headliner was going too far. But Well, with this, with this veiny member sticking out, it was almost, I mean, this was, a, this was up there with you know, this Serbian film with, <laughs> with the penis-related demise. But this was so much more intense. That was so, like, uh, this is almost like a bad joke. I didn't see that one coming. Mm. Yeah, well, I know, I know, how about, I, know, how about I, know it, I had to go there. But. It's, 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 this gave a new meaning to giving head. The thing, the, the yeah. protuberance comes out and just destroys this woman. And uh, yeah, and, and the Brian character has no real recollection of this other than a, a bloodstained pair of drawers. And that's about it. So he's, he's finding holes in his... Uh, escapades in the evening he doesn't realize that a body count is being created mm -hmm. as he's going out he got a sense of it when at the scrapyard but now it's it's becoming more and more like really bothering him on a moral level well of course because i mean you know it, it, many times when someone is under the influence of a substance be it drugs or alcohol they, they suffer blackouts they would get yeah. in the morning they can maybe see the evidence of something that happened last night but they don't recall what happened yeah so. well, they'd rather live in denial mm -hmm. so ultimately uh, he takes off. He escapes. He goes to uh, another flop house in New York City, this being the Sunshine Hotel, which is totally a spiritual cousin to the Hotel Broslin basket <laughs> case. And at this point, it becomes clear who's calling the shots here, and it's Almer. He says that um, he basically owns Brian. Brian's going through his serious withdrawals, and this is when that scene come, happened that, you, that was so indelible for you with the... Oh, oh, yeah, and well, and also, yeah, oh, jeez, um, a, a protracted shower scene with one of the residents of the building, which was also quite hilarious and and bizarre and surreal and and odd. So as as disgusting as this film was, there's also elements of 
uh, well, I'm thinking in particular of a hallucination he experiences whereby he and Barbara are engaged in a threesome. Mm -hmm. And this could have been spawned from the mind of, of Cronenberg in something like Dead Ringers, which has something similar. And I thought, like, it didn't, I didn't expect that kind of uh, overt sexuality or this kind of uh, incident with a with the lady from the punk club. It, mm. it, it could have I mean, he really went for the throat with this, and it could have been an entirely different movie. And I think it was subjected to certain cuts when it came out. From what I understood, is when the film uh, was initially released theatrically, no cuts. But when it was first released on home video, there were a lot of cuts, including that fellatio scene. So, geez, so what what could they have done? I can't even imagine. I don't Just know. Just the aftermath. I'm sure the hell Hannah was not happy. Hmm. I wouldn't be happy if my film was vulgarized like that. But yeah. yeah. Now, there's another just incredible scene in this movie, and that is the scene that takes place on New York City's public transit. Because, only because it's just such a wonderful um treat for fans of basket case where he's sitting there and he's you know basically spaced out and wearing yeah, like Elmer and, and, and yeah and trying trying to I guess uh, reconcile that his girlfriend has uh, since shacked up with his brother I think it is his brother fair yeah. enough and they have this discussion on the on the train and it just made me like filled my heart full of joy to see one of those old New York City subway maps mm -hmm. which is completely outdated now because they build subways on like toronto and yeah and then we get this just wonderful passenger Don, on the dynamite train. cameo who should walk in clutching that old familiar basket <laughs> uh afro somewhat deflated but still mildly <laughs> afro combination but still kevin von henrik yeah and he's clutching below so in a sense it's almost like a de facto sequel in a very sort of roundabout way to basket case maybe leading us into basket case two and three so that was yet another credit to this movie i mean something that just Again, just put a wonderful smile on my face. And ultimately, the film just comes down to a sort of uh, battle between the original owners of Almer, the elderly couple, and Brian to see who will, you know, achieve ownership of this creature. It's not, and again, it's not, it's not really the, uh, the destination and how this film ends. It's a journey, and it's just a lot of fun. I mean, great kills, some wonderful scenes of gore, and fun characters and just you know the, the thing with with uh Hanlotter's best films is that he he makes monster movies where you can't help but sympathize with the monster because they're just so darn lovable and i i love belial i love i i, I adore belial i wish i had like a my own little belial you know <laughs> like right here on the couch next to me and i'd love to have a little almond myself it's just a really just fun charming yet in many ways perverse movie and that's basically hand water in a nutshell no for sure um so i guess do we segue into what we learned here uh sure uh well i i'm gonna make another italian food reference here no, i knew i was gonna i, I, I know we're talking yeah. yeah. there's a fantastic up. so we had the the cerebellum gnocchi which mm -hmm. actually made me hungry because i love the wonderful little italian dumplings uh, it's just one of my pillows of potatoes. Oh, they're yeah. just so glorious. <laughs> but yeah, there's a scene where uh, they're on a date, uh, Brian and Barbara, and this is at the time when Brian is just not fully off the rails, but has started to uh, turn and started to become, uh, started to experience the side effects and the negative, um, you know, effects of taking this 
substance, whatever it is that Aylmer injects into his bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's ordered uh, spaghetti, spaghetti and meatballs. meatballs. Yeah. And uh, at one point, there's a pulsating. One, one of the meatballs is pulsating. And it was, yeah, it was pretty gross. Pulsating as a brain. It yeah. He emits it as a brain. And first it's one meatball, and then it becomes all the meatballs on the plate. Fantastic scene. Oh, amazing. Uh, another thing I learned is the, the soundtrack's really great and minimalist too. It, it actually reminded me a little bit of X Files. So there's little bits of just, and he's really working within the budgetary constraints and doing everything that you should do with uh, $800,000 $800, of whatever it was. Mm -hmm. So there are some inevitable, I guess, special effects he had to use, but uh, a lot of it is just. Go out on the street, guerrilla style, yep. over to the Bronx, St. Mark's Place, East Village, and just sticking a camera there. And we get to see New York in all its CD glory, yep. whether it be these subway stations or, or this, uh, yeah, pre-gentrification New York, fantastic to see. Uh, and in a way that the permits have not permitted filmmakers nowadays to really showcase the city in all its glory. What did you learn? <laughs> Well, I mean, you kind of stole uh, my thunder there because I was going to talk about the uh, the meatballs on the plate. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to return back to what I was uh, talking about at the beginning of this uh, recording, at the beginning of this podcast, and just the, the the worship that so many of us horror fans have for certain directors like, you know, your Hen and Lauders, your Stuart Gordons, let's say your William Lustigs. Um, and as, once again, I mean, these are not names that are familiar in the mainstream. There's really not that many horror auteurs that are household names you know horror rarely i'm not saying never because it happened one time that i can remember gets nominated for an oscar you know there was one horror movie that won best picture of the oscar and it was the only time ever and that was sounds of the lambs directed yeah, by of course yeah jonathan, jonathan demi. demi yeah uh but he's not a horror auteur he just you know he happened to have a uh a pedigree cast and Anthony Hopkins and Jodie yeah, Foster. Yeah, and then, then the auteur types who dabble in it, but it's not strictly horror. Like I'm thinking M. Night Shyamalan, mm -hmm. who's more of a thriller type guy. There's not really a... Yeah, apart Polanski, from the aforementioned... You know, is somebody who would you know make the, the odd horror film every now and again. Um, some films you might not call a horror movie per se, like Repulsion. Um, yeah, again, the more psycho psychological, psychological rather than... It's yeah. more horrific rather yeah. than horror, but that's the type of horror I really like. Uh, the Tenant, too. I mean, that's a horror movie as well, but it's not, you know, a, a horror movie, i.e., let's put this on the cover of Fangoria, show the blood and guts, but it's yeah. psychologically uh, rooted. Horrific. Rooted, yeah. Herzog's Nosferatu, that was another film that we uh, we podcasted, which I think is one of the best films I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Ever seen. But, yeah, our horror tours do not get the credit they deserve. I don't think, I mean, you know, the most respected of them all could very well be David Cronenberg, and I don't believe a Cronenberg film was ever nominated for a Best Picture Oscar. Was uh, Dead Ringers and Madame Butterfly ever nominated? I don't know. I can't think of it. Uh, there were rumblings, at least uh, maybe at uh, Golden Globes, that uh, History of Violence might have. I think which Vigo I thought was, was, was nominated for his okay. incredible performance, but yeah, I don't. That's the thing. I mean, and, 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 and the, oh, the incredible! I just yeah, we're off on a tangent, but William Hurt is just so. Glorious. Oh, he was nominated. Oh, okay, yeah, for that one just, for basically being one amazing. Scene. Yeah. But yet again, I mean, is History of Violence a horror film? It's more of a crime film, right? Yeah, so, sure, sure. You know, you're not going to see Scanners or Videodrome nominated for an Oscar. Not that an Oscar is an arbitrator of anything. I mean, it's all a bunch of shit anyway. Yeah, I mean, indeed. you know, with the Oscars are going to be airing in a couple of weeks, and I've seen a lot of the movies that are nominated. Um, I 
quite enjoyed Fences. I thought that was a really good movie. Um, I thought Moonlight was good, but they're not. But they're good. But they're 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 like good and maybe more good for you. They're not yeah, transcendent no, no, that's to a exactly certain right. extent. Yeah, I thought that uh, um, La La Land, which is probably going to clean up at the Oscars this year, was. A real missed opportunity. I mean, you know, I love musicals, and it, this was a musical that didn't even have one hummable song when I left uh, the theater. Um, it was okay. Uh, so many movies that have won the Oscars, these are not indelible movies. Uh, yet again, there are so many. Our beloved genre just does not get the respect it deserves when it comes to the the award. You know, the awards, the, the critical kudos. I think The Exorcist might have been nominated, but it only became by virtue of it being a cultural phenomenon. I believe Linda Blair was nominated, but it's few and far between. So I'm going on a tangent here, but what I'm saying is that for us, you know, you, me, our listeners, Frank Henenlotter is a god. Stuart Gordon is a god. William Lustig is a god. You ask your average moviegoer who this person is, they're gonna, their face will just blank stare. But that's what makes horror wonderful because I could have a basket case t-shirt on and I could walk down the street <laughs> on any given day and get nothing but people giving me side eye and like a stance yeah. views. But then I go to a horror convention and everyone's like, and all of a sudden you're with your like-minded folks and everyone's like, oh man, basket case, what a wicked shirt that is, right? So I, Well, there's so much opportunity here in a way that uh, uh, the followers that were... Uh, left in the wake of Scream, uh, totally were derailed by the uh, irony and the self-referential winking tone of those types of films and your scary movies, mm -hmm. uh, which seem to be going on indefinitely. Well, they keep making those, but there's an opportunity for a funny horror film mm -hmm. uh, in a way that isn't uh, winking. And mm -hmm. in on the joke, and that's where Tucker and Dale versus Evil exemplarly is that even a word? Uh, yeah. Okay, it is. I don't think I'm pronouncing it properly, but yeah, that, that really <laughs> tapped into a, a certain uh, where these two bumbling uh, hayseeds became just so indelible as well. But there's space to work within the Stu Gordon mm -hmm. uh, milieu and the Henenlotter milieu, and no one was really going for it, mm -hmm. and. I don't know why, because the and it's kind of old school as well. So it's it brings the horror that you associate from classic horror from the '60s and '70s, but it's also they're monster movies too, mm -hmm. and with and that's almost a dying art as well because monsters that are lovable. How often does that happen as well? They're mostly not if they're made at all. The monsters have become us, and they're just. The killer and saw and these types of characters or Leatherface, they're they're just us, but not actual monsters. So well, if, if someone could take on that mantle and start doing films like this, mm -hmm. that would be fantastic. Well, first of all, back then, and I'm talking you know in the seventies and eighties, the market was such that you could make a movie like a basket case or a brain damage or a reanimator and you can get a theatrical distribution deal and you can make money and then it would go on home video and You'd make more money videos yeah. at the time were like 80 90 bucks a pop for the store to buy it and you can make money but the way the model is now it's unsustainable to make a moderate moderately budgeted horror movie you know these young auteurs that you know greg lambert is another one made slime city he you can't do that anymore you know if anything you're gonna you can you'll raise a pittance on kickstarter 30 grand 
you'll get an, you'll make an indie movie it might get some distribution by let's say Wild Eye which is a great company we, yeah. Yeah, we've gotten some wonderful movies sent us from Wild Eye it might get a VOD release but I mean the, the distribution doesn't doesn't really the distribution excuse me the distribution model is no longer the same you know back in the early days of VHS stores were hungry for any and all product they can get and horror sold horror rented so they would take it all so I mean there was a, there were, there were distributors going to to the Cannes Film Festival with nothing but a concept and a movie poster and making yeah. big deals with foreign just uh, money men and and who knows what kind of concessions you have to make well we we've, we've talked to people who do know when you try and approach uh, Amazon Prime or Netflix to get mm -hmm. your product there and you're competing with hundreds if not thousands of other titles and God knows what kind of yeah, deal with the devil, uh, mm -hmm. Faustian bargain, if you will. Here, you, you got to make to and on that front. Just to sort of harken back to a point you made earlier about you know the I guess whatever wave it was, you know because horror is sort of cyclical, and we're kind of in, in another sort of resurgence right now because a lot of films, that, horror films as of late, have become very successful. The box office is split. Uh, the latest Sean Malong and the Ding Yong film that, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, was number one of the box for three yeah. weeks. Shan, but, wow. <laughs> yeah. um, but isn't it interesting how, because you mentioned Scream and whatnot in that postmodern era, and a lot of younger horror fans really looked at Scream as a seminal film in their horror viewing lives yeah. and horror development. But isn't it interesting that when you go to a, a convention and you'll see somebody wearing a basket case t-shirt, you'll see somebody wearing a maniac shirt, you'll see somebody wearing a reanimator shirt with you know, Dr. Herbert West, you will never see somebody wearing a Scream shirt. I, I've never... seen more torso shirts than I've seen Scream shirts. There you go. You'll never yeah. see, you'll, I don't even think they make, I don't know what you did last summer t-shirts. If I saw somebody <laughs> wearing that at a horror convention, yeah. I'd probably kick the shit out of them. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> so I don't know where we're going with this, but that's what I like about this podcast. Every so often we go off on mm. little tangents and I think they're rather interesting. Yeah, but for sure. Getting back to, uh, to Basket Case, this was a different era. The late 70s, straight up to the, you know, this this is all part of the VHS boom. I mean, this is this was the late 80s. Still, the VHS was king. Video stores needed product. And, you know, made this film. It might have been eviscerated by critics, but it got distribution. And it made money. And it allowed him Lauder to then make Basket Case 2 and 3. So, yeah. Viva El Era. That's yeah. it's gone now. I don't know what to say. Except ask you what your star rating for this movie is. Oh, geez. So I'm torn because some of the effects didn't, or, yeah, I, I don't know. If, I, I don't want to say they, okay, they didn't hold up. Uh, this is a weird way to put it. At the time when I was watching it, I didn't mind so much. But looking back on it, I guess they're a little less than than spectacular. And I don't know why I didn't mind then. And it it, it impacted me it's more because now. because you're it, spoiled because of CGI. Like, I would rather see... I guess so. A, a, a CGI monstrosity rendered completely impractical effects a la brain damage. I would enjoy that so much more than what we get now. I don't know. I mean, I was not... The effects for me were so charming and it not, never did take me out of the picture. Whereas when I see a really poorly rendered CGI character, for example, in... Uh, they were done really well in Lord of the Rings but really yeah. terribly in The Hobbit. So when I saw one of those <laughs> ogres, or, it just took me right out of the movie. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, you are, when I see Belial flouncing around as a stop-motion puppet, it doesn't take me out of the movie. It's, I don't know, it's the milieu of the movie, just totally... Yeah, I, I this is my fourth viewing now, and uh, over the course of several, several years, and, geez, I'm, I'm so close to giving it that four. And as he's pulling the materials out of his... 
out of a gaping hole in the side of his head, which turns out to be a dream. And it's almost like a, the sausage making process where the thing keeps coming and yeah. coming. Or like a, like a clown pulling out uh, a handkerchief from, his, it mouth. Just, from yeah. his mouth. And it just keeps coming, but it was so disgusting. And at the beginning, I was like, oh, this is kind of gross, but it's not so bad. And then the more he pulled, it's almost like a, uh, a protracted gag on Family Guy where Peter is just saying, ow! Ow, over and over again and they, they keep pushing and pushing and pushing uh, to the point where it eventually got stomach turning and I couldn't take it but yeah. at the beginning I thought okay this is this is fine it's just but yeah it, it was the three and three quarters for me if not pushing four okay a glorious yeah just uh, quirky piece of work a fun throwback movie monster movie that was sort of brought up to date for the uh, the sensibilities of the late 80s and anytime you know a movie depicts old new york city the way i remembered and love it i always appreciate that so i'm gonna give this as well it's not four stars for me uh basket case for me as being a seminal movie is a four and a half star movie uh Uh, this one will be three and three quarters as well but man was it fun to revisit it i i enjoyed the heck out of it and i think now because as much as i love basket case the first I really did not enjoy Basket Case 2 and 3. And I recently purchased them on Blu-ray because they were re-released by, I believe it's Synapse on Blu-ray. And I got them for a pretty decent price. So even though I didn't really like them, I bought them. And I'm looking forward to revisiting them. Yeah, well, I mean, when you reach the the summit of achievement and, well, in my opinion, Reanimator, let's say, and then Bride of Reanimator or that type of, or even From Beyond, it just doesn't match. Bride of Reanimator was shite, but that was directed. That was directed by Brian Hughes and not Stuart Gordon. But but still, like any associated property, you you reach the top and you're the Sir Edmund Hillary of horror. Like Reanimator is one of my top five of all time and anything associated with it. The other Stuart Gordon movies do not resonate with me as much. Uh, I would like to I would like to check out the sequels. I'm excited now because I might have been unduly harsh on Basket Case 2 as well because mm. I do not remember liking it either. But again, when you hold the first in such high regard, you can't help but everything else has to be diminished in, in comparison. Have but, you seen Stuck by Stu Gordon? Uh, no. Wow, you got to watch that movie. Very, very different sort of horror movie from mm. Stu Gordon, but what an incredible movie. I'll just leave it at that. Maybe okay, in a later nice. day we'll podcast Stuck. That was one of his, I believe, last directorial efforts. He hasn't really yeah. done much in the last little while. No. Where have you gone, Sue Gordon? No. And if you're stuck for an interesting genre film site to read, uh, check out our site, www.reallyawfulmovies.com, with uh, fun reviews updated as often as we can. And, of course, new episodes of the Really Awful Movies podcast every Friday for your listening enjoyment. And we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.